Welcome, you are listening to LEAP, the podcast series that brings you interviews with leading scholars in law, economics and philosophy. We are Lynn Jonsulen, Jeroen van der Ven and Jaap Bai. With us today is Eric Bosner, Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. He never fails to deal with issues from a critical sense, taking positions that are counterintuitive whether in international law or contract law. In his latest book, he addresses questions of climate change justice. We will talk about this subject later, but first, Eric Posner will talk to us about the economic analysis of contract law, which he evaluated in a seminal paper in 2002. Welcome, Eric Posner. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for talking to us. Several years ago, you have published an article, and here you described the successes and failures of economic analysis of contract law. Can you perhaps first explain some terminology for us? What do you understand to be contract law and how do economists approach this field? Maybe you can give a typical example of what you would study in this field? Uh, Okay, so contract law um, uh, is the area of law that deals with um, agreements that people enter into voluntarily. And um, uh, what counts as contract law in the United States, I'm sure differs in some respects uh, from contract law in Europe. In the United States, we tend to think of the common law of contract as it's evolved over the years, along with the Uniform Commercial Code, which governs certain types of contractual arrangements. Um, Since the 1970s, there's been a movement toward economic analysis of contract law. And uh, this can be described in a number of ways. At the most abstract methodological uh, perspective, it means using economic ideas and concepts to understand contract law. Uh, More specifically, economists assume that people act in their rational self-interest. And so the purpose of the rules of law is to um, cause self-interested people to act in a socially desirable way. So tort law, uh, for example, uh, self-interested people might you know, drive their cars carelessly or injure other people uh, in order to obtain gains of some sort. And one thinks of tort as a way of deterring people from acting in this socially undesirable way. Contract law, in some ways, is a little more uh, complicated. Um, people uh, cooperate with each other because it's in their self-interest to do so. If I have a number of goods which I don't value very much and which you value, you might be willing to exchange uh, money for those goods which I value more uh, than I value the goods that I own. You value the goods more than uh, you value the money and so we're both better off. And one of the normative principles of economics is that the law should um, support activities that make uh, at least one person better off without making anybody worse off. So these, are, these and similar principles are applied uh, to the area of contract law. Uh, probably the most famous uh, economic argument about contract law was developed in the 1970s by a number of different scholars. And it was an effort to explain why the normal remedy for breach of contract in American contract law is expectation damages. So there are other types of uh, remedies that would be possible. For example, reliance damages, which would um, compensate the victim of breach for any expenses that he's incurred, but would not give him his lost profit. Uh, And uh, economists 
uh, well, you know, it's always been a puzzle for law professors in the United States. Why expectation damages? Why not reliance damages or some other remedy like specific performance? And economists argued that um, expectation damages, unlike these other measures, uh, result in this uh, unique outcome which is desirable from an economic perspective. Namely, it causes the person who's thinking about promising, uh, sorry, thinking about breaching to take into account the harm that he causes, he would cause to a third party. And so if the benefit of breaching is greater than the harm, the person can go ahead and breach and pay damages. If the benefit of breaching is less than the harm, then the person won't do it. That's called efficient breach. From an economic perspective, that's desirable. Uh, by contrast, reliance damages would give people inadequate incentives to uh, perform. Other types of damages, like punitive damages, would deter breaches which are actually socially desirable. So how does the economic approach differ from the perspective of lawyers? Well, um, a legal perspective, or what we usually call a doctrinal perspective, um, is the standard type of legal argument that a lawyer would make to a judge in order to persuade the judge to rule in favor of his client. And so a legal argument, or a doctrinal argument, relies on precedents or statutes and uses certain types of legal reasoning, most importantly, argument by analogy. Um, legal reasoning is entirely internal to the law, so you cannot use legal reasoning to criticize or evaluate the law. The law is just taken as a given. By contrast, the economic approach is external, and it's more like uh, a moral uh, philosophical approach. And so you have external standards for evaluating the law, and you can criticize uh, the law for failing to live up to those standards. So an econo economist might say that expectation damages is better than reliance damages. A lawyer making a legal argument would never make, uh, would ma never make that claim. Um, so, uh, so that's the basic difference. Now, there's a little bit of a twist, and I think this explains why economic analysis uh, has been so influential in American law. In the common law system, it's always possible for a lawyer to make a kind of non-legal or moral argument to a judge, because judges are permitted to, in, in effect, change the law. So when one talks about doctrinal or legal reasoning, it's actually kind of a subtle there's a subtle complexity here, which is you can actually make moral arguments or arguments that use external moral criteria when you're making a legal argument to a judge. So where the law is um, ambiguous or its application is unclear because of technological or economic changes, a lawyer can always say to the judge, you know, it's not clear whether expectation damages or reliance damages is the real rule here, but you should take into account the following policy considerations and uh, apply expectation damages. Okay, so there, there are some clear advantages of the economic approach, but you have also been a somewhat critical towards the achievements of economic analysis of contract law. And in this, you distinguish between the descriptive and normative achievements. Perhaps you could first explain what you mean by descriptive and normative in this sense. So, uh, yeah, economics draws uh, an important distinction between uh, descriptive arguments and normative arguments. Uh, descriptive arguments are about how the world actually is, and normative arguments are about how the world should be. So an example of a descriptive argument in economics is the argument that if you um, increase the minimum wage, 
uh, fewer people will be employed. So that's just a descriptive argument. It's an argument about how the world will change as a result of a policy change. It's not a normative argument because there might be good reasons for uh, increasing the minimum wage even though it would have this effect. Um, a normative argument would be an argument like you should not increase the minimum wage because it has this negative consequence. Okay, so in your paper you uh, stated that uh, the economic analysis of contract law failed to uh, come up with a plausible descriptive theory of contract law. Uh, so why, why is that? Well, I think the, the, the simple way of putting the answer is that the world turns out to be very complicated. And so the descriptive agenda in uh, law and economics is to try to show that legal rules um, are efficient. And so the way economists do this is they build models where you assume people are self-interested and, and, and then you, uh, based on these models, make a prediction about what the law would be if the law uh, is efficient. Um, it turns out, though, that um, the models produce ambiguous predictions because there are lots of different ways in which uh, people might respond uh, to legal rules. So, for example, um, trying to create an efficient contract law means, as I said before, giving people the right incentives to perform or breach. Uh, now, if that were all that we wanted to do, then you, know, you would predict that expectation damages are the rule. But there are other things that one would want to do from an efficiency perspective. You want to give the parties an incentive to reveal information to each other before contracting. You want the parties to have the right incentives to negotiate and settle rather than breach and litigate. You want to give the parties um, incentives to select the right contractual partners. And when you try to build a mathematical model where you take into account all of these um, different things that you want parties to do, it turns out that you don't come out with any kind of clear prediction about, for example, what the optimal legal remedy should be. So it's indeterminate. Yes, you also point out in your, in your argument here and in your article that economists tend to assume that people are completely rational. And to what extent do you think that this is the main driver why economists have failed to produce uh, good empirical findings or findings that are in line with reality? Well, uh, you know, I think that's complicated. So I think uh, it's clear that people do not act um, precisely in the manner that uh, economic models uh, assume. People are not, the, the real problem, they're, they're, I guess there are a number of problems. One is, it's not clear how self-interested people are. It's clear that they're pretty self-interested, but people also act for the benefit of others. Now, there are ways for economists to incorporate altruistic motivations into their models, but they don't work very well. They, they work, you know, a little bit, but not very well. Um, the other problem is this problem of bounded rationality. That it turns out that even very simple economic models require people to engage in calculations which are very complicated and which very few people can actually do. Uh, now, it's not clear that that's a fatal objection to economics, but it does, you know, give one pause. Um, the reason is, is that people might instinctively behave in the way that the models assume. And so the, a common example is to say people can ride a bicycle even though they don't know the laws of physics. You know, maybe they can make contractual decisions without knowing uh, economics. Uh, one simply learns the basic principles through everyday life. 
Um, so one now economics, you know, as a discipline, makes all kinds of predictions. Uh, you know, sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. Uh, so I do think that the model is close enough to reality that uh, one can use it in a variety of situations. Sometimes, for example, the different cognitive biases might cancel out, or um, you know, there, there are various reasons why it can work. But other than that, I do think that the the problem of um, bounded rationality is a serious one for economics. It's an open question whether um, uh, you know whether economics can deal with it. Uh, so. As I said before, in some contexts, it's possible that economics can ignore the problem without losing too much explanatory power. In other contexts, it may be that economists will be able to incorporate the insights of cognitive psychology into their models. But it's just an open question at the moment. So we've talked about the limited descriptive value that an economic approach to contract law has, but you've also pointed out that the normative value of such an approach is very limited. Could you elaborate on that point? Yeah, so um, there, there are a couple of problems here. For, first, a lot of people just don't accept efficiency as a moral criterion. Um, and so to the extent that you think that the government and the courts should be pursuing other values, economic analysis may not necessarily be uh, very helpful from a normative perspective. Now, my view is that, in fact, um, Although efficiency is not a moral value, as it's defined by economists, there is a moral value in enhancing the well-being of people. And that that's one of the government's uh, obligations, is to enact laws, enforce laws that enhance the well-being of people. And that an efficient version of contract law will do that as long as there are other government programs in place, such as a welfare system that's used to redistribute uh, wealth from the rich to the poor. So the contract law system will make the pie larger, will generate more wealth, but then other parts of the political system can redistribute wealth. So even if you're more concerned about, for example, equality uh, than well-being, you may still be willing to be persuaded by normative economic analysis. But it, to a large extent, it depends on what your priorities are. In one of your recent papers, you used a simple economic model to analyze the right to withdraw. Uh, can we derive policy implications from that? You know, everything depends on context. <laughs> so, in the United States, unlike in Europe, the idea of a right to withdraw is very radical. Um, and it sounds a little bit um, left-wing. And uh, economics is, tends to be associated with, cons in, with conservative uh, thinking. But, it, but I think, I've always thought it's interesting, and other people have noticed this as well, that if you do economic analysis correctly, it doesn't always generate uh, conservative outcomes. Um, and in this case, what I thought was interesting about our argument is that it starts with, you know, mainstream economic premises that people associate with conservative thinking, but it generates an outcome which in the American political context seems kind of radical. Um, and, uh, and I think that's a point that's worth making. And I also think that um, uh, at the same time, and a little bit in tension with this, if you look carefully at American law, including the law of, of states in America, you actually do see various areas of the law that reflect the ideas behind the right to withdraw. So this idea at first sight looks very radical, but when you think about it carefully, it actually seems like a modest, you know, a good but sort of modest uh, type of reform. Um, and so uh, it should be appealing uh, to people. 
But I'm not willing to say, you know, based on a very simple model that, you know, it's obviously the correct thing to do. Um, I, I, we try to be careful to say in the paper that for one thing it depends on various empirical assumptions that, you know, reasonable people can disagree about, maybe uh, additional research can be done on. And it also, um, so that, you know, that's one point which is always true about economic models. And another point which is connected to my earlier paper is that it's a simple model which means it excludes other types of things that we might care about. And so I think of the paper not as a, you know, a proposal to uh, uh, a political leader to change the law, but as the first step in a discussion with other academics about what uh, the law should be. And so I would hope that other academics who disagree would write papers in which they point out that we missed something, and then we can respond and argue that that was not important, or maybe that was important. And that's how I think that academia can be helpful for um, political decision making. Do your conclusions apply to other disciplines as well? That is, is it possible that other disciplines such as political philosophy or psychology can render determinant implications for contract law? Yes, I would say there are problems with these other disciplines. I, 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 you know, I admire the work in both of these disciplines, but I think in many ways they're not as helpful as economics, you know, despite the deficiency of economics in the terms of their ability to generate fine-grained uh, proposals for legal reform. Uh, so political theory, you know, political theorists can talk very generally about the structure of just institutions and society, but in my view, and people disagree, it has less to say about something like contract law, for example. So I think lots of different contract law, types of contract law are consistent with, for example, Rawls's principles of justice, which just is another way of saying that his principles of justice are not that useful for a lawyer because they don't provide determinant recommendations about the structure of contract law. In economics, there has been a lot of empirical research. Do you think this should also get a more prominent role in legal studies? Um, I think that uh, the priority should be empirical studies. I think that's the weakest area of legal scholarship. Um, so that would, that would be my priority. Over the years, you have published on many more subjects besides contract law. Currently, you have a book forthcoming together with David Weisbach on climate change justice. In his book, you have stated that standard ideas about distributive or corrective justice do not fit climate change problems very well. Could you explain what you consider to be standard ideas about distributive justice? Well, you know, uh, distributive justice uh, is generally used to refer to the principle that we should care about the pattern of of um, endowments uh, and generally speaking that the pattern should be roughly equal or to the extent possible equal and so it's you know manifested in uh, for, for example the welfare system where wealthy people are taxed and the money is redistributed to the poor now so that's what people mean generally about by distributive justice but of course distributive justice could be given a different basis and different can be given given different bases in moral philosophy so for example utilitarians the classical utilitarians of the benthamine sort actually were very strong proponents of uh, distributive justice because of the diminishing marginal value of uh, of money um, under the utilitarian view you should redistribute money from the rich to the poor because a rich person values 
a dollar or a euro less than a poor person does. But that is only one and certainly uh, a controversial justification for redistributing uh, wealth. Uh, people who reject utilitarianism have various uh, arguments uh, for redistributing wealth. There's the Rawlsian uh, style of argument that depends on this uh, veil of ignorance. And there are other arguments uh, by other philosophers which uh, do not appeal uh, to utilitarian ideals, but uh, re re generally um, appeal to notions of deontological um, obligation. But you would say that these uh, theories do not apply to the problem of climate change? Well, I think that um, you know they apply in a general sense. That is, uh, I, I'm I believe in distributive justice. I, I'm I'm not the purpose of the book is not to uh, quarrel with uh, people who are committed with distribute distrib with uh, distributive justice. The bo the book takes for granted that it's important, and in the context of climate change, the basic uh, point is about the extent to which people in rich countries should distribute uh, their wealth to people in poor countries. Uh, so the book accepts that as a legitimate goal, that we want to uh, distribute uh, wealth from rich countries to, a poor, to poor countries to the extent that it, it works and it's feasible. Um, but the argument is that although this is true, um, it shouldn't um, affect uh, climate negotiations in the direction of a climate treaty. And the reason for this has to do with the difference between means and ends. Uh, there may be better ways to promote a distributive justice. It may be very difficult to promote distributive justice. But however we do it, and we usually do it through foreign aid, um, we don't want to let uh, disagreements about distributive justice and about the means for um, uh, um, achieving distributive justice to interfere with the climate treaty. And the reason is, is that the climate change is an independent problem. Poverty is a problem, but so is climate change. Climate change will harm poor people and it will harm uh, rich people. And it's important for countries to be able to figure out a way to um, address the problem of climate change. For a variety of reasons, negotiating and entering into an international treaty is extremely difficult. It's more likely to be successful the simpler the, the goal is. Uh, and so I think most reasonable people who are knowledgeable about the scientific literature can agree that um, climate change is a problem and that uh, international cooperation is justified for addressing it. But people disagree much more about distributive justice, that is the extent to which uh, distributive justice um, uh, requires uh, redistribution. Some people, of course, even reject the whole notion of, de of distributive justice. And in addition, it's very difficult um, to figure out effective means for distributive justice. So the foreign aid efforts over the last several decades have been largely unsuccessful because it turns out that it's very difficult to redistribute wealth to poor countries in an effective way. And so for all of these reasons, I think that um, a climate treaty should address the problem of climate change and that we should continue to address the problem of poverty either through unilateral uh, approaches of different countries experimenting with different foreign aid regimes or through the soft type of uh, multilateral cooperation that has existed in the past. So one argument in favor of not isolating these two questions is to say that the developing countries somehow need to be convinced to sign the treaty 
and if they don't this has very bad consequences also for us and so maybe as uh, as a way to convince them to sign this treaty we can bundle the two things and make transfers to them in exchange for accepting the, the treaty. To the extent that it's really true that developing countries will not join a treaty unless they get paid off, then I'm in favor of paying them off. The problem is that the bargaining power of countries and their poverty are not correlated, right? Except for China. Maybe. Except for China. So China will have to be paid off. And in a way that's good because it's a poor country. Although it's not necessarily good because it's not the poorest country. We, we should really be transferring resources to the very poorest country. But, you know, to China is not, is not a bad thing. So if we take China and just focus on China, it may well be that the demands of distributive justice and the you know, practical demands of bargaining happily coincide. But I don't think that's a general pattern. A lot of the poorest countries, so let's say in Africa, um, Sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America, uh, aside from maybe Brazil, they have very little bargaining power and they would actually benefit a great deal from a climate treaty. So in those cases, they really should you know, join any treaty, even if they don't get uh, transfers. Are you optimistic about climate change in the future? About a treaty or about the... Um, uh, the solution to the whole problem. <laughs> uh, no, I'm pretty pessimistic. I, I, I'm, I'm generally pessimistic about the ability of um, countries to cooperate internationally. And I'm generally pessimistic about uh, the efficacy of treaty regimes. Um, so I'm pessimistic about the, the, whole, the whole thing. Um, I just think that the most likely outcome is that the climate will change and that countries will inefficiently have to incur costs to address the problem as it, as it occurs. That said, I do think it's worthwhile for countries to try. Uh, I don't think there's any real downside from trying to negotiate a treaty. Um, and I think there's an enormous upside. It's, it's possible that it would be successful and that would be terrific. There are examples of successful treaty regimes in the past. Probably the best example and the closest example is the Montreal Protocol, uh, protocol which uh, dealt with um, chlorofluorocarbons and other, uh, other uh, elements that uh, damaged uh, stratospheric ozone. Now, that problem was turned out at the time to be a lot simpler and, and involve uh, many fewer countries. Um, and one of the things about that problem uh, is that it could be, you know, it's sort of, you could make things better in a short-term way. Uh, so, so it was just uh, much more pr uh, propitious for um, a, a successful treaty regime. Now, the fact that the Montreal Protocol has been successful can give us some grounds for optimism. It certainly shouldn't lead us to think that a climate treaty is impossible. But I think generally, if one takes into account the way the state system works, one has to be uh, pessimistic about, uh, about climate change, which is simply uh, you know, an, an unfortunate. You were saying that maybe we should not favor the developing countries, but even reward the European countries. Mm -hmm. And can you maybe explain why, why you think we should do that? Yes, yeah, so if the climate treaty succeeds, um, the, 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 our argument is that you know, one basic constraint that reflects the realities of the state system is that the climate treaty has to make 
the states that are involved better off than they would be without the treaty. But even if that occurs, there's still plenty of room left for flexibility because what a climate treaty would do is generate a kind of a surplus, right? The, the, the um, amount of utility, if you want, or wealth that's generated for the countries compared to what would exist if there was no treaty. And one can make all states better off and still one has a choice about how to redistribute the surplus. So one of the effects of a climate treaty is to create a precedent for future negotiations. And one wants to create a good precedent, not a bad precedent. So if the money is just given to you know, rich countries or irresponsible countries, that'll create a bad precedent. What you'd want to do with the surplus is funnel it to the countries that have uh, al already done, made the best efforts to addressing the problem of climate change. Now, I believe the countries that have done that have generally been European countries which signed the Kyoto Protocol uh, early on and have been engaging in unilateral measures to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And if the treaty rewards the European countries in this way, then the precedent will be set for future negotiations that the countries that moved first and acted in a way that's for the global interest before other countries did will be rewarded for doing so rather than penalized because uh, their bargaining power will be correspondingly uh, reduced. So this is another irony, right? In this dynamic sense, it makes sense to compensate the Europeans, even though they're much wealthier than uh, other people around the world. Okay. On that note, I would like to thank you for talking to us. Thank you for having me. This was Leap, a podcast series of the Center for the Study of European Contract Law at the University of Amsterdam. The series is made in association with the Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics. For more information and more episodes, please visit us at www.jur.uva.nl/leap. Thank you for listening.